Thomas Munzer arrived in Wittenberg in early 1522, Philip Melanchthon, Andreas Karlstadt, and the other reformers had no idea of the radical ideas that had come to fruition within his heart. These ideas, which would ultimately threaten to tear Germany apart, were still hidden from the other scholars in the Wittenberg circle. But they weren't hidden from everybody. A few months before his return to Wittenberg, Munzer had outlined his radical theology for the believers in Prague in a document that would be called Munzer's Prague Manifesto. Munzer hoped the manifesto would help the believers in Prague to unite against the emperor to form a new society. Instead, it only served to highlight the radical nature of Munzer's thinking. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. So, uh, now, although Luther was able to calm everything down with the Envocavit sermons in Wittenberg, there was continuing unrest throughout the rest of Germany, eventually resulting in the Peasants' War. So before we dive into the Peasants' War, which takes place in 1524 and 1525, we'll need to introduce Thomas Munzer. He is a former Wittenberger who eventually became the leader of the peasants in the war. Now, uh, Thomas Munzer was installed as the preacher in the town of Zwickau. Based, based on, on Luther's recommendations. So we're kind of starting with a guy who Luther had a lot of hope and promise for. Yeah, he was actually one of Luther's earliest supporters. And when one of Munzer's parishioners, Nicholas Storch, uh, showed unusual biblical insight... Munzer advocated making Storch a preacher without any formal training. Now, the city of Zwickau, uh, especially the city's council of Zwickau, I should say, they became fearful about this irregularity, and so they summoned Storch to be questioned. And the question here is about how someone is rightly called to the office of the pastor. That someone should be uh, rightly called is anticipating that the Holy Spirit will call men to the office of the Holy Ministry through the church. Okay, there's a like there's a process, there's an orderly process that the Holy Spirit works within, and the the God can. Uh, it's Luke, not through an internal. I'm called to preach, and whoever thinks that they're called to preach could come forward and speak, but rather instead that the church identifies the man who should be the one who preaches, and the church calls that man to preach. So. You know, what ends up happening is Storch flees Zwickau with two friends, uh, which is Thomas uh, Dreschel and Marcus Strubner. Now, Strubner was also a former Wittenberger, a Wittenberg student. And that should have given them uh, the good credibility to be uh, confident in what they were doing in uh, Zwickau. But Zwickau became uneasy with them. Storch, Dreschel, and Strubner eventually ended up in Wittenberg, staying with Andreas Karlstadt. So we talked about these guys back in episode 27. These we, three guys are kind of known as the Zwickau prophets. The three of them. The three of them. Uh, Storch, Dreschel, and Strubner. Now, uh, Karlstadt, uh, Amstorf, Nicholas, Amstorf. Nicholas Amdorf, and Philip Melanchthon were all impressed by the Zwickau prophets uh, and their claims of some special revelation. So, uh, now, the thing is, is that both Amsdorf and Melanchthon disagreed with the Zwickau prophets on the rejection of infant baptism. Somehow, these Zwickau prophets... But now, the initial appeal of the Zwickau prophets was this confidence that the Lutherans had that all baptized believers, uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit in their baptism, should have the ability to read the scriptures. The scriptures will be clear. And now you've got these men uh, who are inspired by the Spirit of God to speak clearly about the Scriptures. This is what they expected. 
They expected that when someone was baptized, uh, that they would, through the working of the Holy Spirit, be able to see the clarity of God's word in the scriptures. They thought these guys were just speaking from the scriptures. But now as time goes on, it becomes more and more clear that, well, we'll get into that. But they're but speaking beyond point, scripture. At this point, it's sort of unclear. They have a few initial yeah. things that they're saying. There's some excitement. There's some excitement. And maybe it's just small disagreements about infant baptism, which is a big but, but it doesn't seem like it's going completely off the rails yet. Right, right. So now Luther returns in March of 1522, and uh, Thomas Munzer, by some records, is there waiting with his Wiccal prophets. Now, by March 1522, Munzer's teachings have changed dramatically compared with when Luther knew him as a student. So we're going to have to take a little bit of a sidebar to cover what we know about Munzer's thinking when he met Luther in March of 1522, because a lot happened between when he left for Zwickau, when, when Luther... So 1520, Luther recommends Munzer for Zwickau. Right. 1521, he leaves... Zwickau. Zwickau. And then 1522... You got the Zwickau prophets showing up and there's controversy. Yeah, and so... So so, now let's rewind ourselves uh, to April 1521. So Munzer is dismissed from his post in Zwickau about uh, April 1521. And, you know, between that time, leaving Zwickau and arriving in Wittenberg, he's wandering around and he eventually ends up in Prague, uh, Czech Republic. Now the reason for him to go to Prague is Prague is a hotbed for some discontent related to the Catholic Church and the emperor. In 1415, Jan Hus, a Bohemian, that's Prague, Bohemian, uh, he has been called to the Council of Constance, and he is burned at the stake as a heretic because he advocated for communion of both kinds, uh, the laity to read the scriptures, and the ability for the laity uh, to read the scriptures without the intervening authority of the priest. So he comes to Prague as a quote-unquote Martinist, which is like an old-timey name for Lutheran. They weren't calling him Lutherans yet. They were calling him Martinist. And to establish his credibility as uh, a follower of Luther, he presented to them uh, an academic disputation that he proposed to have written. Now, this academic disputation that he has really isn't his own. This is this is actually a lie. Uh, this is actually a disputation from Philip Melanchthon, and uh, but he's 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 you know walking it around saying, "Oh yeah, this is mine." He, he's presenting his resume as a, a Lutheran teacher, and and now people in Prague they didn't recognize the deception. They didn't kind of check out the resources on his padded resume, and they welcomed him as a a guest of honor. So. So Munzer, but now once he starts talking, <laughs> yeah. Well, he starts out. He's he starts give, he starts preaching at some of the most influential churches in the Hussite or the Bohemian world. Uh, he's got the, the Bethlehem Chapel, which was the historic pulpit for Jan Hus, the Corpus Christi Chapel, and then this very influential Tyne ch- Church, which I, I I actually did a little research. I couldn't find much about the Tyne Church, but at least. In the documents that I, at that time, the Tyne Church was very, very influential for the thinking of the Bohemians, for the, the Hussites. So what was preached there would start to influence the, the Bohemians. But now they're starting to hear him more and more, and they realize that he is not Lutheran. Right, right. So they, And what's the big thing that kind of gave them that knowledge was he was advocating for... Uh, military style uh, rebellion he's he's actually starting to talk about overthrowing the existing order and you know the the hussites in prague uh or the bohemians in prague they had just gone through 
a hundred years of, or at least they had been in battle with the Catholic Church and they were tired of it. They really weren't interested in going to war over religion and they really weren't interested in Munzer's program. Now they're, they're interested in Luther's reforms. Yes. Uh, but they're exhausted by uh, a military concept. Yes. Yes. And so, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, so during his stay in Prague, just a few months before he arrived in Wittenberg. So this is, this is, uh, just before he gets, he eventually gets kicked out of Prague. Might as well so say he lasted that. a year in Zwickau and he lasts about six months in Prague. Right. Uh, just a little bit before he's kicked out of Prague, he writes down his ideas. He, he actually writes down the Prague Manifesto. He no longer copies Philip Melanchthon's disputation. He is now gaining confidence to put his own words forward as his own ideas. So this Prague Manifesto, it's really, I think, under, we think it's important to understand the Prague Manifesto uh, because it outlines the theological foundation for Munzer's leadership in the Peasants' War, which is coming up right around the corner. And shows why there's a division between Martin Luther, the Wittenbergs, and the Zwickau prophets, and Thomas Munzer. Yes, yes. So when Munzer writes the Prague Manifesto, he writes four different versions of the Prague Manifesto. There's a short German version, a long German version, a Latin version, and a Czech version of the long German version. That may sound unnecessary. It's just the reality that in a European world, there's going to be different translations, except that each version is a little bit different. The The Latin version is written for the intelligentsia, for the leadership. It's more refined. It, it softens the edges on revolt. And then the long German version is full of swear words and creative insults uh, that that might even make Luther blush. Yeah. Um, a warning now. Yeah, yeah, warning. This is... This is a uh, uh, the insults he uses may not be appropriate for young children's ears. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, Munzer calls his opponents uh, scrotum-like and stallion-like, hot for horse. Yeah, so he's trying to outdo Luther. He's using some scatological language. Now, what's scatological mean? So, that's, uh, that, wait a second. Now, yeah. That's that's worth a drink. Now, scatological. Think of uh, deer scat. Mm. Uh, just poop, poopy language. <laughs> okay. So that's really where that comes from. Yes. Okay. Scatological. I'll have to put that into my vocabulary. I, so, I think you shouldn't. In that <laughs> you don't want to have a bunch of scatological talk in your language. It may not be appropriate for the professional business environment you're trying to create. Probably true. But uh, Munzer, in in that in that copy of the German version that might be more spread through the peasants in the German world. Uh, he is more kind of that man that's in the working man's pub language. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but he makes in uh, in the Prague Manifesto. He really so now does, we go past the different concepts of the the different versions. The different the nuts versions. and bolts are all the same. Yeah, and and let's let's go through some of these. He actually makes some stunning assertions in the in the Prague Manifesto. First, First he proclaims himself as the new Jan Hus, Jan Hus two uh, now he's not that saying that he's Jan Hus reincarnated or or some sort of mystical thing like that. Except that for all the people that followed Jan Hus a hundred years ago, you should follow me now because I'm that guy. Yeah, and he also claims that he's similar to Moses, called by God to lead the people. He believes that he has been directly called by God to lead this uh, end of the world revolution. Um, he claims that there's going to be a truly universal Pentecost where the elect will be able to speak directly with God in this world after they are separated from the reprobate. So go back to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples and the, the disciples 
are able to speak the gospel in such a way that people, no matter what language they speak, are able to hear it. So there is this confidence in the Pentecost that the Holy Spirit provides the strength for people to speak clearly the Word of God. Now, Munzer interprets it that the Holy Spirit will come in a universal way that all people will no longer need to read the Scriptures to know the will of God, that God will directly place it on their hearts. So, now, before... But when would this happen? The... The, the the universal Pentecost, it would only happen after the separation. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so there basically has to be a physical separation of the elect and the reprobate, which is Between war. the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah. The bad guys need to be separated away from the good guys so now the good guys can hear the word of God. So, in the Prague Manifesto, it seems like Munzer is satisfied to mostly preach and leave it to God to perform the separation. And that's sort of, he's going to become even more radical as he goes on. Um, and part of his revolt is is seeing that the the peasants, uh, by their character as being the working man, um, are the ones who God is going to work through, and the upper class, um, who who use their power and authority to exercise uh, privilege against others, are going to be silenced. So there are several more points made by Munzer, but for this discussion, we're going to finish off with his assertion that truth is found through the direct communication with God. So in this area, Munzer was totally against Luther's teaching of sola scriptura. So, right, now, you, you you make me drink when I use too much Latin. That's, what, now, so, sola scriptura is some Latin there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, scripture alone is what that means. And so Luther was advocating that scripture alone is the sole source of norm and foundation for Christian doctrine and living. And Munzer is advocating that it's not scripture, but it is instead a living revelation that God will directly give to a person that is superior to the revelation in the Bible. He says that the Bible is dead words that priests throw to believers as bread is thrown to dogs. So let's put some summary. Munzer says that the Holy Spirit has been poured into him and that he has returned to the perfection of the first man. He is the perfection of man before sin appeared in the world. He says he now has the ability to communicate directly with God and has been given the task to lead the elect toward this new Pentecost. And he claims that he's only the first, but all of the elect will be able to hear God speak directly once they truly have faith. So, like we mentioned, in uh, in late 1521, just six months after he arrived in Prague, the people of Prague throw him out of town. Now, just before Munzer is thrown out of Prague, he wrote a letter to Nicholas Hausmann, a preacher from Zwickau who had been an opponent of Munzer's back in Zwickau. So, what's interesting is, you know, I, uh, why did he uh, write to this opponent? Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So he is in Prague. He's not kicked out yet, but he writes back to the opponent in Zwickau. And he says, essentially to the the preacher in Zwickau, Nicholas Hausman, um, here are who, who he, this is who I really am. And in doing this, he is eliminating any return back to Zwickau. Uh, he's retur- eliminating any sort of bridge back to that old world of being a preacher in a pulpit, and now he's going to be the man on the street. And he is saying to Nicholas Hausman, everything that you thought I was, I'm that, and I'm going to celebrate it. Okay, okay. So in this in this defense that he writes to, to Hausman, he makes a few points. Uh, first one is that we're in a period of the final conflict between Christ and the Antichrist. Uh, he says, no compromises are possible. 
and the people must understand clearly which side they're on and be willing to fight as fiercely as possible for that side. So Thomas Munzer is placing the conflict he is in 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 an end-of-the-world apocalyptic vision where there will be this indwelling of the Spirit of God and it will separate the good and the bad, and that is now time for people to figure out what side they're going to be on. And if you're going to be on the bad side, be ready to lose. So I've been holding off on this beer for just this episode with uh, with Munster's apocalyptic vision. Uh, today's beer, we're going to take our beer break. Why don't we? Uh, today's beer is Diabolical India Pale Ale from North Peak Brewing Company. And, and now, Mike, what's the ABV, the alcohol by volume of this beer? Uh, alcohol by volume is six point six six percent. What a remarkably random number. <laughs> Uh, it is a delicious beer. Uh, it is is got uh, a sweetness to it. Now the this is this is actually a this it's an IPA, and they they said it was a, a you know really a heavily aggressively hopped IPA, uh, but I'll tell you it's tasting pretty smooth. This is this, we've had some much harsher. Yeah, uh, IPA. It doesn't have a strong bitterness on the tongue. Uh, I think it's because they describe it as having a, a caramel sweetness to it. Uh, um, it really does taste. It tastes great. Now it does use some um, different kinds of hops that they um, are remarking on: Cascade, Chinook, and Willamette, uh, all Oregon hops. Uh, and it has an. Uh, I think that's supposed to be providing its abundance of flavor and aroma. Now there's there's notes. Now, tasting beer, I'm learning with you, Mike, that there are notes um, to the melodies of these beers. Yeah, th- this one, it, it says uh, citrus, pine, mint, and floral notes. I, I, I can taste the citrus. I, I, citrus, I can, I can taste the mint a little bit. And the floral, it was just uh, a springtime. Yeah. Uh, but the pine, I'm not so sure. I'm not, I'm not catching it. I'm not, I, you know, and maybe it's just that part of my tongue don't work. You know? yes. <laughs> I just didn't catch it. Now, let's talk about the North Peak Brewing Company. It's a neat... A neat conglomeration of uh, some of the best Michigan brewers. Um, now, these particular brewers started within that dark den-like interior of the Grizzly Peak Brewing Company down in Ann Arbor back in 1995. And you know, it's sort of funny. Yeah, it started with the Grizzly Peak, and then uh, and then they they partnered up with Ron Jeffries and Mike Hall of the Jolly Pumpkin. Uh, uh, Jolly and, Pumpkin, and they purchased some, a deserted candy factory in downtown Traverse City. And and then that's where they made North Peak Brewing Company. So you've got you've got you've got Grizzly Peak, you've got uh, Jolly yeah. Pumpkin, and you've got North Peak all coming together in this company that they this sort of overarching company called the Northern United Brewing Company. And now it's headquartered in Dexter, Michigan. Uh, great uh, minds at brewing recruited a final full time member of their inner circle in August two thousand nine. Master Brewer Mike Hall. And uh, the mission is simple. Uh, they want to continue to make beers of outstanding art and flavor, uh, making beers a labor and a love. And uh, everyone at uh, NUBC uh, is going to strive to create beers to lighten the spirit and soothe the soul. Sharing the joy of the betterment of mankind is the most anyone at NUBC could hope to accomplish. <laughs> sure. Now, NUBC stands for Northern United Brewing Company. Ah, Okay. It's good stuff. I mean, and and now uh, this this uh, they talk about the di- diabolical IPA. This was uh, in late two thousand nine at the new secluded state of the art brewing facility on Old Mission Peninsula, which I think is up near Traverse City. Uh, the first first bottles of Siren Amber Ale, diabolical IPA, and the majestic American wheat rolled off the bottling line. 
And uh, I'll tell you, this Diabolical IPA, that it's a, it's really a good beer. Yeah. I, 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 like I like I said, you know, I, we we we've been sort of talking a little bit. We're getting sort of tired of the real heavy uh, winter beers, the heavy and, winter beers, and are... the super strong citrus flavor. Even this one, it, it says it's a uh, has citrus and pine and mint and floral notes in it, but it's not overwhelming. I was just in Kroger, the beer aisle, and there was a tangerine IPA. Um, you know, there's these grapefruit IPAs. There's these heavily strong citrus IPAs, and this one. I think more has a smoothness to it and it has a sweetness to it but it's not overly fruity yeah i, I, I like this one it's yeah. obvious that these guys know what they're doing so now some of those other beers i can I, I can like you know one can at a time i could imagine in getting a six pack of this and not i being frustrated that i have to keep drinking it after the first one i agree i agree this is this is a very drinkable beer well, let's get back into it. Let's So, uh... going back to Thomas Munzer, uh, Thomas Munzer, in summary, uh, believes that the world is entering into the final conflict. Uh, it is the final countdown between Christ and the Antichrist. There's no longer any chances for compromise. You either have to be on one side or the other, and if you're on the wrong side, be prepared to die. Yeah, so he sees himself as having returned to the perfection of Adam before the fall. He is the new first man. Holy cow. Uh, he's confident. I, <laughs> and he believes that by returning back to this perfection of Adam, he is allowed to speak directly to God. Just as Adam in the cool of the day of the garden would talk to God, Munzer believes he now has that authority and privilege to speak to God. So, but he didn't see him as the only one who was going to do this. He's right. only the first. And his job is to bring uh, the elect together so that the direct revelation from God could be shared by all the elect. Now, that last point there really springboards pretty nicely into the thinking behind the Zwickau prophets. So the Zwickau prophets are those three guys that leave Zwickau when Nicholas Storch is um, challenged by the city council on his authority, and they go to Wittenberg. So according to Munzer's teachings, we really shouldn't be surprised that a weaver uh, like Nicholas Storch uh, would suddenly have, uh, in his and Munzer's theology, uh, this clear view into the biblical teaching. Now both Frederick the Wise and Luther are suspicious of these visitors from Zwickau. Uh, Frederick's really not comfortable with the breakdown order. You know, and, and this question of order and authority and who has the privilege or the responsibility uh, to speak for the word of God and where does their authority come from, that's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a topic that kind of circles around uh, much of this question of the peasants and the knights and the Lord's Supper and some other things that Luther's doing as the reformation of the church leaves the theoretical and enters more into the ordering of society and the ordering of the church. Now, for Frederick the Wise, this is the big challenge with his Wiccal prophets. They are not rightly called or ordained by the church to speak. They are proclaiming the gospel without formal training. And in Frederick's wise eyes, this is anarchy. Right, right. Now, Luther has a little different take on it. Uh, Luther's suspicious because the prophets uh, from Zikau uh, claim that they have some new revelation from God. So he's especially concerned that uh, they don't show any signs that biblical prophets experienced. For example, uh, they didn't report any terrifying experiences in encountering the true and living God. So you've got Isaiah in the throne room of God of Isaiah chapter 6. He's, oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. you got Ezekiel expressing great fright uh, as he's seeing the, the machinery of God's presence uh, moving through in Ezekiel chapter 1. You've got Peter in the boat who suddenly as the storm is calmed is down on his knees in fright for the presence of the true God in his midst. 
Yeah, yeah. Scripture's pretty clear that when people are in direct relationship to God without into any intermediary, and they come to that knowledge that that's who they're in front of, that they're in front of God, they are frightened. And nope. he questions his Wicca prophets. Right. And honestly, you know, we, we have our, our share of people who claim to have, you know, some sort of revelation of truth even today. Mm-hmm. And this isn't bad advice. Is Okay, well, you know. Was it scary? Was it scary? You know? Um, Did you realize you're a sinner in the hands of, <laughs> of God? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question. So uh, when Luther gave his Invocavit series, sermons in March of 1522, he spoke against the fanatics, which was almost certainly a reference to the Zwickau prophets. Uh, after the sermons, the prophets confronted Luther to assert their authority, and you know they claimed that Luther was relying on Scripture, but they were getting a direct word from God. So now Luther demands an authentication of their teaching in the form of a miracle. That's actually not another. That's a, that's not bad advice either. You know, if, if somebody if somebody has the direct word from God, they should be able to produce a miracle. That's if, yeah. that's one of the biblical you know stamps of approval on uh, on on the word from God, right? And so the working of a miracle would show that the uniqueness of the presence of God was present and they refused to perform a miracle. So they left town. So here's the basic story that's been told uh, about Luther's relationship to the Zwickau prophets. They come into Wittenberg. They speak uh, a word of God that is separate from the scriptures as a new direct revelation. Now, it's... And Luther challenges them and right? says to them that... Uh, God's word in the scriptures is sufficient. If you truly are speaking a new word, that should be terrifying and it should be accompanied by a miracle. Uh, they can't handle this confrontation of Luther's reliance on the true word of God and they leave with their tail between the legs. That's kind of the standard story. Luther opposes the Zwickau prophets with the word of God from the scriptures and they have no answer for the scriptures and so they leave. Now, is that what you were taught? In, in yeah, that was pretty much how I was taught. That the, the Zwickau prophets uh, come with this loosey-goosey word. Luther... Uh, brings to them the confidence and the clarity of the scriptures, and they've got uh, no answer because everything they've got is just kind of uh, uh, loosey-goosey, and it falls apart as soon as it's questioned, and so they leave. Okay. Well, now, (laughs) recently, uh, there's some recent scholarship that's based on the primary sources uh, that refutes that story. Uh, they said the prophets were already gone when Luther arrived from uh, from the Warburg. Now, in this newer version, although the prophets left before Luther came back from the Warburg, uh, it is that they returned to argue with Luther at many various times over the next year or so. So the big difference between these two is not that Luther challenged them and that they left Wittenberg, but the big difference is how often it happens. In the kind of the... The typical story is Luther meets them with the double-edged truth of the word of God in the scriptures and they're cut to the core and they leave. Boom, end of the story. And now you can do that too. When you're faced against falsehood, uh, answer that falsehood back with the scriptures and uh, your enemies will fall apart. Yeah. Now, the the thing is, is, you know, I, I don't know why the, you know, we talk, you have this, this, the reality of what happened. Right. That they come it's, back over and over it's again. It's a sort of messy story of... and th- honestly, There's no one spot where there's clear victory. There's just this continuing argument and this continuing nagging of entrance into the Zwickau prophets uh, that are arriving in Wittenberg and sowing discontent. Luther speaks to them. People speak to them. They leave for a little while and they come back again. And your own experience, Mike, in kind of looking at how controversy brews in a church... 
Yeah. Well, There's rarely kind of that one single moment where you speak the word of God and your opponents um, see the truth of what you're saying and they... They wander away or they're done. Or they come to correction. Yeah, that doesn't happen. You know, and I've been in my share of uh, theological discussions or battles, you know, and... Uh, yeah, I've never had that experience. You've never had just that one-off argument where you speak the word of God from the scriptures and they repent and they return back uh, no. to the truth or they leave and they don't return again. No, things it's, are it's a little bit more messy. Than things that. are way messier than that. I, I, at least what I've had to deal with, yeah. you know, it's always been a, a messy discussion that they come back, you go back to the word of God. They give you some new angle that you're not, okay, well, let me think about that. You go back. You, I, yeah. I, of course, I'm no Luther. Right. You know? And and then it's like, well, wait, no, the word of God says this. And then you go back and forth. And But they, they rarely, at least my experience is I, they, they rarely actually are come to, you know, will admit they're wrong, even with the word of God against them, clearly. You know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I just don't get it. I don't yeah. understand. I don't, I don't, I don't think you're right, but they have no, ar- they might not have any argument, but they'll, they'll continue to hold their, their. Mind. And so I think that traditional story of Luther preaching in Volkovit sermons, uh, being in confrontation with the Zwickau prophets, speaking to the Zwickau prophets and they leave end of the story. I think that story has this appeal that we all hope for this kind of single conversation we could have with someone and make everything go away. Yeah. And and the reality is, as we as Mike found through his investigation of the primary sources, and, and really, it's not that it's been hidden. It's just it doesn't make for a simple paragraph. Right. Right. Is that the controversies in the church usually linger? Uh, they take a while, and there's not this one moment where everything comes into. No, and sometimes point. it never comes into. It never crystallizes. You, you, and even in this story. Um, you, you have the Zwickau prophets and you have, uh, the, 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 uh, what was his name? Storch, uh, Nicholas Storch. Uh, eventually they, some people believe he eventually became a leader of the Anabaptist movement, uh, which is you know, kind could, of the forerunner of the Mennonites and the Amish. And then later in, uh, is where modern Baptists and kind of that decision theology of, of being able to have independent will and decision to choose God. Yeah, so it's it's you know Luther would have really had trouble with that. You know, yeah. Actually, expressed his troubles with that kind of thinking in his lifetime. Yeah. So the key with the Radical Reformation, you hear us talk about the Radical Reformation or talk about the Zwickau prophets, is about the role of the Scriptures to be the revelation of the will of God, or is there some new, direct indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gets poured into believers that becomes now the primary source and authority. For how they teach. Yeah. And and so Luther is going to maintain an insistence on the scriptures as the revelation of God. And the radical for reformation is going to now look to some uh, newer revelation that some, will come in some universal Pentecost at the apocalyptic end of the world. At least in Munzer's uh, flavor of the radical reformation. Yeah. That's what it, that's where it goes. Now, so no. Munzer continues to advocate for this kind of radical change that he advocated in the Prague Manifesto. Uh, his advocacy for the violent uprising uh, eventually placed him as leader of the peasants in the peasants' war. 
And there's some connection uh, to see between Thomas Munzer and the Peasants' War and later Karl Marx and this insistence that there ultimately needs to become a violent uprising uh, where the, the falsehoods and the lies and the deceits of those who are in power are unveiled and the people who have been pushed down can finally see their oppressors for what they are and rise up and stake their claim and their rights in the world and live now as a new community ordered not by the powers and authorities of, of privilege or the market, but now ordered by the the Spirit of God. Yeah, it's sort of funny, I, I, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a future episode, but you know, when I first started learning about Thomas Munzer, I thought for sure he would show up as uh, the patron saint of the ba- Anabaptists, or patron saint of of one of the radical reformation, but no, not really. People don't want to claim him. Nobody claims him except, you know, uh, later on, you know, the, the communists uh, take a shine to him. And so we'll, we'll, uh, it's sort of interesting how this all plays out long term. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that about does it for, for, for today. Uh, we want to say thanks to Josh and thanks to the folks at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. Our sources for today include James Kittleson, a Luther the Reformer, which you have heard in other podcasts is a pretty consistent resource for us. And mm-hmm. Scott Hendricks, Martin Luther, the man and his vision. Um, uh, a new resource for this episode was Ma- Matthias Rydell, which is, uh, he had uh, Thomas Munzer's Prague Manifesto, which is a case study in the secularization of the apocalypse which is where he really lines up the uh, the linkage between thomas munzer and the um and the communists uh, wikipedia is a great uh place to just kind of put some of these names and dates into a general context or you, and uh finally you can contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com uh, we'd be happy to have a road trip if you've got a men's group you'd like us to meet or or uh, any sort of group uh, and we would show up at a brewery near you. You'd bring some people. We'd bring some conversation. And together around the table talk, we'd see that intersection between Luther and the Reformation and maybe some contemporary events as well. Uh, you can also catch us at graceontap-podcast.com. That's the website where we post all of the um, episodes along with some images and uh, links to the resources that we use. Uh, finally, you can catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap Podcast. We appreciate any reviews you can put on iTunes and help get the word out. Thank you very much. Prost. Prost.